And unfortunately, we've been in this trend in medicine to just one pill, one formula for all. But what we discovered from the microbiome is we're all different. And if we're all different, how can we all use a one pill, a one formula for all? It doesn't work. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Dr. Hazen, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. We are going to drill into some topics that people are not talking about. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Well, you have been doing a lot of work with with research studies, with clinical trials, um, most of, I think, all through the FDA, if I'm correct on that. Yes, I've, uh, I always kind of joke and say, you know, I, there's something wrong with me. I play with feces. I'm in the lab analyzing feces with COVID. I have the FDA watching me every minute. And then I'm in bed with pharma because I do clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies on the same side. So there's definitely something wrong with me, but I'm a hardcore researcher and this is what I love doing. That's incredible. And you have done some amazing research on COVID and the microbiome. And I really want to drill into your, I think it's your latest research paper. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So we actually, we have, uh, so last year, the, my first focus, when I realized that COVID sits on ACE2 receptor, I started thinking, well, where's the biggest body of ACE2 receptors, the bowels. So it's got to be in the stools. And I also know that you know, having looked at my stools and over a couple thousand stool samples, everything ends up in the gut. You know, the lotion you put in that's contaminated with, you know, staph aureus ends up in your gut. The lotion, whatever you're eating ends up in the gut, whatever you're breathing ends up in the gut. So I needed to look at the stool samples and look at the feces. And um, early on, I actually told the National Institute of Standards, Scott Jackson, I said, you've got to look at the feces. And I sent him this paper from China. That was my first focus and my obsession with that. And he started thinking, well, we need to look at the feces. And that started the whole septic tank, looking at septic tank for COVID-19. My paper then became, because of course, at the beginning, we needed to validate it. We needed to make sure we were doing the right thing. And I told my scientists, and it was kind of funny because we were in March or April collecting stools. I'm like, I got to collect stools of COVID patients. So I started writing these protocols for the FDA to approve them thinking, you know, I'm going to treat patients and how am I going to treat them? And I'm going to put these protocols, but I need to collect stools. So the first, like in March, we started collecting stools um, because we had the kids, we were all ready. And we start, and my scientist said, you're wasting a lot of money. You're not going to find anything. And I said, well, you know what, if we don't look, we're not going to find. And I, I remember the day before he said, you're probably going to find 20% of the stools have COVID in there. I go, okay, fine. It's, it's still good data. Right? So then the day of the findings, he said a hundred percent of the stool samples we analyzed had COVID. In other words, everybody that was symptomatic and that we had a nasal swab positive had COVID in their stools. So, you know, at the beginning, that was a small paper because, you know, that was an expensive study. And of course we published it, I think in, July, it took till February 
to get to publication and pass peer review process. And to the point that even the paper went to the WHO to look at it, to see, make sure it was validated. Because I always say all research needs to be valid, verified, and reproducible. That's why you don't see too much of my stuff out there until I have like the heads of academic center, you know, my friends look at it and say, you know what, it's, we've criticized it enough. Then after that, they agree to put their names on it. And then I put it through the peer review process. So we found COVID in the stools in um, last July. I mean, we found it way before, but we published it in July. Of course, it takes always takes a long time to write these papers. And, um, and then we, we got published in February. And now from while we were looking at COVID in the stools, we said, well, let's keep looking. And of course, you know, we're up to thousand samples and we find COVID inevitably all the time. We even find COVID in those people that we weren't suspecting COVID, right? So, you know, the vaccinated person that thought that they weren't, you know, that they were fine, we had it. You know, the non-vax, everybody that's asymptomatic, some people that are asymptomatic. So when we found that, we said, well, what is that? What is COVID doing in the gut to the microbiome? And that was the second paper that I, so I shifted my, my, my direction from, you know, while I'm treating patients, so I'm juggling a lot of wheels at once. Uh, I shifted my direction. I said, we got to publish finding the lost microbes of COVID-19. And I specifically called it that because, um, you know, there's, there's been a book that was written on the lost microbes. And, and to, because that was the awareness, right, on the microbiome. That was the awareness that told us, you know what, there's something going on when we take antibiotics. So we looked at the microbiome of patients with COVID. And the paper from China came out before us showing our data, right? So I said, well, let's look now at the people because we had collected families of COVID, right? So if a family had COVID, we collected all the stools. We collected the stools of the people that were exposed to COVID and the people that were not exposed to COVID. So we're, so I said to myself, you know, to ch- to look, that that's great. They reproduced what I'm saying, right? Which was low bifidobacteria, low facilobacterium, low diversity. Let's show whether those people that were exposed to COVID but never had it had the opposite formula. And that's what we found. We found people that were exposed. So we took, we had 20 patients. And you know, the criticism is always, well, it's just a small number, but unfortunately, these stool samples are extremely expensive. I mean, it's like three thousand to forty five hundred dollars per analysis and per evaluation and going through pipelines, et cetera. So we basically looked at the stools. We found COVID, we looked at the microbiome, we analyzed the microbiome, and we realized that the microbiome of COVID that were exposed but not didn't catch COVID and were antibody negative, in other words, they never got the disease or anything, had a higher bifidobacteria and a higher facilobacterium prasnitia and a higher diversity than the people that were exposed and had it and were severe within the same family, right? And so that set the premise of maybe this is a microbiome. Maybe we're looking at it completely different. Maybe it's not genetics that are protecting us. Maybe it's what's in our gut, what's living in our gut. And then you start applying the medications you've given through the pandemics on your treatment. And you look at the before and after and you start seeing, well, 
is the virus eradicated? Because now remember, we have a stool assay that shows the virus. And then we have a stool assay that shows the virus disappears. So depending on what that stool assay shows, whether it disappears, it's like having you know, a wart on your hand and zapping it. Well, you had it before, you zapped it, it disappears. Well, that's successful treatment, right? So my goal is to basically treat as many people, look at the stools before and after and see what's working, right? And, and how is hydroxy or, or other drugs, remdesivir, Regeneron, Gilead, the new Merck treatment, how is that working on the stools to kill the virus first, because now we have an assay that shows it kills the virus. But then on top of that, to on the bifidobacteria, what is it doing? Because it's a two-prong, right? It's You have to kill the virus and you have to boost your immunity. You can't kill all of it. And unfortunately, we've been in this trend in medicine to just one pill, one formula for all. But what we discovered from the microbiome is we're all different. And if we're all different, how can we all use a one pill, a one formula for all? It doesn't work. That's a really great explanation. What have you found with the medications to help COVID patients? So nothing I can really discuss because we're still analyzing. You know, remember, it's all research and discovery. I always joke and I say, I'm going to be the last train at the station when everybody has failed. So because, and I'll come out and they'll, you know, we'll still be in a pandemic five years, six years from now, hopefully not, but we'll still be. And they'll say, I wonder what Dr. Eason's doing with the microbiome. And that's probably when I come out as the last train. Um, you know, I just think we are, we went one plan and we put all our eggs in one basket and probably we should be looking at a second plan and plan B. And so you'll see me on Twitter say, time for plan B. Is it time for plan B yet? Because I think you know, part of the reason we're so divided, it's not because of the politics. It's because people feel in their gut that, you know, plan A may not work for them or, or plan B may not work for them. You know what I mean? We're divided because it's not a one pill or a one formula for all. We're all different. This is humanity coming out and, and screaming, I want to be heard. I want to be I'm different. My body is different. I want to take a chance on plan A or plan B. We've got to respect humanity. We've got to respect freedom of choice. That's the number one law of ethics. And the fact that we're not, you know, we're kind of told to just do one way, that's why you're having a revolution right now. I mean, that's the best way that I can call it is a revolution. That's a, that's a great explanation, I think, to what's going on and kind of the underlying, I think we sweep it under the rug and say we're different politically. But I, I mean, I hear this day in and day out, and I think you hit the nail on the head with what's going on um, out there, because that's, that's what I have people disclose to me. Everybody, you know, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, they all come to me and like, I have a gut feeling. And this is your microbiome talking. So you got to pay attention. You know, everything happens for a reason. Action leads to a reaction. And unfortunately, if we don't pay attention to the action or the reaction, we're going to lose. And we're going to, we could lose humanity, especially if we're going on a one path. Let me ask you this. There, we have some people that have, they, they, they contract COVID 
and they end up with COVID long hauler symptoms. Do you have any indication of what's going on in the microbiome when somebody actually comes up with long hauler symptoms? So we're going to be publishing that data. So I'm not going to be putting it out there too much, but it's definitely in the microbiome. And you'll always hear me say the microbiome tells the story because it does tell the story. It does show you a difference in the microbiome that, you know, when you analyze in large quantity, these patients, you start seeing at the beginning, you know, 10, 20, 30 patients. But when you're up to 100 long haulers, it becomes more of a picture. You know, it's, it's interesting because I had two people today who thought for sure they tested positive for antigen and um, and uh, PCR for COVID. They had all the classic symptoms. And um, I'm talking to the wife and I said, you, you, didn't, you didn't develop an antibody response. Your COVID IgG and IgM are negative. And she said, well, that's impossible. I'm like, well, there's two thoughts, right? So it's either you didn't develop uh, an antibody response because you don't have the way, the ability to develop the antibody response or this was a false positive for COVID. And, you know, basically, you know, that wouldn't, that would have not, you know, that's, we need to repeat the test. In other words, in one month, then I tested her husband in the house, same exact thing. He didn't develop an antibody response. So when you have two people, it's no longer an N of one, right? The coincidental finding it's now it's two people that makes your hypothesis that maybe it wasn't the virus COVID to begin with uh, in her, but she just tested falsely positive for COVID. And then she just resolved and, but didn't develop an antibody response. So there's two reasons. She probably will develop a T cell response, but if you repeat the COVID IgG, IgM, and then the T cell response is negative, one has to wonder what's happening, right? Is did this patient, can we really categorize that person as having had COVID? So that's why I think blood tests and antibody testing is very important to add to the question. And we should have been doing antibody testing the whole time. I mean, blood tests, I think is, it, it adds one more, um, you know, clue to the, to the, to the pandemic, you know, which patients tested positive with COVID by PCR and antigen testing and ended up not having an antibody response or a T-cell response. And was that really COVID? So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, alt-alt-fam-f-a-m-med-m-e-d, and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. And, and what do we do? So, you know, someone tests positive for COVID um, and they have major symptoms associated with COVID. What do we do to boost up the bacteria that actually protects us from COVID? So we're all in research and discovery right now. Everything. So we first discovered, which took so long, 
COVID in the stools and we can kind of, we've seen other people are coming out with it. So it's great because it validates the work. It reproduces the data. Now we're seeing that there's lost microbes in COVID, which is great because you've seen the data from Japan, which also shows potentially colonella is a bacteria, right? That could help. Um, and then we've also seen, you know, data from Korea and China that also shows this loss of bifidobacteria, right? Now, the big question becomes, how do you replenish that? And that's a tough question. And let me just tell you, I've been at this since, uh, well, since March, really, and actually probably before, because if you uh, recall, I do a lot of clinical trials on, on the microbiome and diseases. And one of the findings in, in autism, for example, was loss of, of bifidobacteria. Um, so obviously it's not that simple to replenish the bifidobacteria. It's not a probiotic over the counter. We've definitely, we've published a paper that showed that actually if you take the wrong probiotic, you can also kill your microbiome. So I caution everyone that's taking these over the counter. A lot of patients that are developing COVID, you know, were on, on probiotics that were over the counter. So I'm not sure if it's a dead bacteria in the probiotic. I'm not sure even if it's a pro, if it's a real probiotic. Um, I certainly raised that issue with the National Institute of Standards with Scott Jackson because I, I showed him that data. And I said, look, you know, all these products, you know, there was a, a great study that showed that 16 out of the 17 products on the market does not even have bifidobacteria in there. So people are taking these products and they're saying, oh, bifidobacteria, let me just swallow it. But for all you know, it's not, and then it kills your, your microbiome. Vice versa, there's a very interesting paper uh, that I'm going to be publishing, which is products over the counter. So I'm not going to say anything, but let's just say that products over the counter, um, unfortunately, 15 products we tested, three of them had bifidobacteria in there. So it's scary when you're drinking or eating your you know, your milk or your kefir and you're thinking, okay, well, is there bifidobacteria in there? And it may not, it may be a contaminated batch. It, it may be not so real. So, you know, it is not that straightforward. There's a lot of data out there, um, you know, and, and a lot of noise that's trying to sell products. And unfortunately that noise can hurt your microbiome. And so, you know, the best advice I can give people is, you know, obviously boost up on your vitamin C, your vitamin D, uh, make sure you're decreasing your stress, you know, a lot of alcohol, you know, it's a, what does alcohol do? You know, it kills, it sterilizes your counter, right? So a lot of alcohol is probably not a good idea. Um, you know, exercising common things. So the same way we published a paper where we took fat and gave it to a mouse, and the mouse became obese, which we knew, right? We knew if you eat fat, the mouse, you know, you're going to gain weight, right? So, but when you see the microbiome changes, when you feed the mice fat, then you have a second thing that basically says, I'm on the right track. And this is, we need to focus and pay attention to the microbiome. So what type of fat did you feed the mouse? Oh, that's a long experiment that I'm not going to get into uh, what kind and all that. But basically, you know, beware of fat, beware of, you know, uh, 
you know, exercise, vitamin D, be outside too. Expose yourself to the microbiome. There's definitely enough data out there that shows that, you know, kids that played in school in the garden and started touching the microbes were healthier than kids that stayed in the classroom and got sick with infection, with ear infections. So I think, you know, the lesson from the microbiome is stop the killing and start building, bringing the microbiome. And I think that's a lesson for humanity to begin with. You know, I think the other lesson from the microbiome is diversity, right? It's not, if you're eating the same food over and over and over again, and you have a neurological problem or something, maybe you have to ask yourself, maybe eating that toast and peanut butter every day, all day is not a good idea, right? So I think um, we have to diversify our diet. We have to bring in more diversity in the gut, but it's not as easy once you've, you've destroyed it. I mean, we could see what we learned from C. diff and Clostridium difficile is the bacteria that got us into this world of the microbiome. Um, you know, if you kill C. diff, they tried to kill it for years. I mean, I was in those clinical trials. For years, I tried to kill that bug. I've done every single clinical trial on C. diff, from antibiotics to monoclonal antibodies to the fecal material in a capsule that's just coming out soon to spores for C. diff. So, and come to find out the answer for C. diff is not killing the microbiome, but actually replenishing it. But good luck finding a good microbiome when you wipe out the microbiome of humanity. It's all, it was already tough before COVID to find a good microbiome. So let alone now, it's even harder. The reason I said, you know, uh, some of my patients were my donors and we have a paper coming out that, you know, we had a couple of donors that were vaccinated. And we found COVID in the stools. I, I'm scared to use those guys as donors because I just don't know if the virus is active or inactive or what's going on there. So, you know, so it is difficult. It's going to be difficult to get a good uh, stool bank in the future for fecal transplant, but we need to pay attention to the fecal transplant, which is the process of taking stools from a healthy donor, which is microbes, tons of microbes, and putting it in a non-healthy with C. diff. And and basically 99% of the time resolving C. diff. So we've got to pay attention to that. And C. diff is very much like COVID in a way, uh, because what have we found in COVID? You know, disappearance of the bifidobacteria, disappearance of the, bif the facilobacterium, perhaps needs see loss of approaching loss of diversity. You know, what happens with the second case of COVID? What happens with the third case, et cetera? That needs to be all looked at. So, so many questions. And so I have all those questions. Um, that's why I don't come with anything that's concrete. I mean, I just see what I, I'm going to speak about things that have been reproduced. Certainly, we found COVID in the stools. People are using it in the septic. It's validated, verified, and reproducible. I was on the right track. Loss of microbes is coming out. Now it's up to people to try different tests, you know, to kind of, to say, well, is this probiotic working, you know, and, and, and work together to say, is this probiotic working on the gut? Is it the answer? Is this medication working at eradicating COVID? Is that the answer? I think there needs to be a little bit more thought process in these, in these studies. I've been doing clinical trials for 25 years. You know, certainly I've seen enough protocols, 300 plus 
to know how to write a protocol, how to criticize a protocol, um, to, you know, I, I just think that the answer of we need to get a quick product, sometimes you got to just stop and not come out so fast and just analyze all the ideas and analyze and, and, and do the research methodically so that you don't miss anything. So you ask all the questions. And I just think we've rushed because we were scared of COVID um, that we're, we didn't, we're still back to square one because we just, sometimes you just got to stop and stop the panic and just say, okay, let's think this through, you know? And certainly I think a, a big part of the revolution I like to call is some people have survived, you know, and are doing great. So, and they haven't caught it. So those people have questions. Maybe the microbiome is the question, um, you know, and some people, you know, didn't have many symptoms. Those are the people we really need to look at. The people that are asymptomatic, the, you know, healthy microbiomes, I like to call them. I, I think you saw me on, on Twitter, maybe, maybe not. I, I talk about the gold poop. Well, that's what the gold poop is, right? You put that person, that's what, think about it. That's how immunity started being thought of when they took, you know, at the beginning of, of vaccines, and they figured out, well, you can take a bacteria and put it in, in, in dairy and kind of put injected in a child. And then you take that child and put it in a room with a patient with measles and the kid doesn't get measles. Well, that was the experiment. Of course, we can't do these experiments now because that's, you know, safety and patient protection, et cetera. But the reality is, you know, you've got to look at what makes a person healthy same thing with hepatitis C, by the way. What got us to answers with hepatitis C and finding a cure with hepatitis C is really understanding the people that even though they were exposed to hep C, never got hep C. What was it in their immunity that gave them that antibody that survived it? And that's how we figured it out. So I think we need to look at COVID with, let's look at the people that are not catching it Let's pay attention to the, to the people that are, you know, naive in a way that have not taken all these meds that have not, you know, been vaccinated that, you know, the, the virgins in a way, why haven't they caught it? What's the answer in them? What's the secret? That's what I'm interested in. Do you have any idea? I have some ideas, you know, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm kind of like, you know, we'll see. I think what about. I think it's all in the microbiome. I really think, you know, this path wouldn't have opened to me uh, if I wasn't going to find answers. You know, when you open a door and answers start coming and people start coming to you, you know, you're on the right path. I'm just continuing the path. I may not be right. I may be wrong, but I got to look. I mean, that's my, you know, God put me on this path with this CRO research company that has done over 300 trials for pharma. And then a genetic sequencing lab that's spearheading the microbiome. And we found COVID in the stools and lost microbes. Maybe there's something there, you know, maybe got to keep going, right? So that's what I'm doing. I'm just a train. I'm just driving. I'm not paying attention to the haters and to the critics. I'm just driving. I just want to see it. If anything, I just want to see it for me to know that, you know what? I'm right. I was right. You know, it's kind of, I'm happy about that. Yeah. And what is your thought on, you know, we've talked about probiotics a little bit. What's your thought on prebiotics? Well, prebiotics have good 
data. I mean, it's definitely, you know, uh, safe. It's, it's good. There's, a, you know, of course, I'm always more of a push the foods that give you the prebiotics, push the, the foods that give you the probiotics. Um, you know, I'm more of a nat, you know, natural in the sense that I like to know who my farmer is. I like to know where my cow's milk is, you know, so I'll be friends with the farmer. But that's just me. I mean, I'm just, you know, I, of course, I'm analyzing stools to look for COVID. So, of course, I'm going to, like, be super critical of the milk I'm drinking. Um, so I just, I think we need to just be vigilant. And that, that's what it's all about. It's vigilance, right? I mean, look at the Amish communities, right? They're doing amazing. Why? Maybe their way is the way, right? Their, lit, their lifestyle, their way of doing things, farming etc. is the way. So, I mean, look at the, you know, Central Africa, you know, why don't they have a high rate of cancer? Why don't they have a high rate of, um, you know, uh, of autoimmune processes? You know, they're in the ground with their microbiome. They've kept their microbiome pretty intact, you know. We have sterilized ourselves. So you can live in a sterile environment, right? But as soon as you leave that sterile environment, you're going to get sick. So myself eating all the foods that are clean and in my environment, you know, if I go to Mexico and I start eating, you know, foods, I'm probably going to get sick because I'm not used to that water. I'm not used to that environment. So my body needs to adapt. Um, and I always give this example of, uh, you know, having uh, gone to a restaurant in Venezuela where the, the restaurant, um, they were feeding these tomatoes and they were washing the tomatoes in this, in this lake where the ducks were having their BMs. And I didn't know that, but I'm here, I am eating my tomato. Right. And then I want to wash my hands because I didn't even want to use the fork. So that was in the middle of nowhere. And I didn't want to use the fork. So I was eating with my fingers and then I'm, I'm asking, Oh, where can I go wash my hands? And they bring me to this pond. Where <laughs> the ducks are just having their BMs. And I'm like, <laughs> This and of course, a week later, you know, I had Giardia and I was pretty sick from it. So, you know, but how come those people survived, right? In that environment with those ducks and everything. And here I got super sick because it's, a, I was transplanted to a different environment. So you got to be really careful uh, to know that the differences in the environment, even, you know, we used to think that it was part of evolution. And it is part of evolution, you know, the strong survive. However, you've got to kind of understand that if you've been accustomed to a certain environment and food for all these years, and then you change that food, um, something's going to change. I have a friend of mine is a pediatrician for families from India, and they used to be traditional. Uh, they used to eat traditional foods from India. And lo and behold, you know, the daughter, you know, develops, developed a, a cancer and then the mom developed celiac spoon. And that's not really, you know, that common celiac spoon, you know, in, in the Indian population, India, in the population from India. And she said to me, well, what, that's impossible. I, said, I can't have that. I can't have celiac spoon. And I said, well, you've changed your diet. You've changed what you've been accustomed to, um, you know. So I think there is some sense to it. Of course, it's, it's, um, it's, it's hypothetical, but we have to pay attention to all these, you know, signs I like to call them. You know, when a Mexican person comes from Mexico and eats, 
sushi and he starts to have indigestion problem. I have to pay attention when a Japanese person starts eating Mexican and they get bloated and they come to my office with digestive problems. I have to pay attention. When a person that never ate bread, all of a sudden someone tells them, oh, you need to start eating seven grain bread. And then the patient develops gluten intolerance and celiac group and the villis are killed. You have to pay attention that what changed? I mean, you know, so much of medicine is being a scientist, is being a, a detective, right? You put all the clues together. And that's all I'm trying to do is really put the clues. Because what fascinates me about medicine is not the constant doing of procedures, colonoscopy after colonoscopy. In fact, I quit all that because it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't thrilling me. I was, okay, well, I'm doing one more colonoscopy, removing one more polyp, but it wasn't getting us closer to the answer of why colon cancer? Why does a 29-year-old kid whose parents and grandparents, you know, the parents were 70 years old, the grandparents were 100 years old, the 29-year-old developed metastatic colon cancer. How does that happen? Everyone in his family um, died at a long age. So you've got to pay attention to these questions that basically say, why is that? You know, here we thought it was genetics, but here's a kid whose genetics were longevity and now he has metastatic colon cancer. And why is colon cancer creeping up? Why is it in the people that are, you know, under 50 now? And why is it aggressive in the young when the young gets it? So I think if we don't ask questions, if we don't keep asking questions, we're never going to find answers. And, you know, my role on social media and doing these podcasts is really to to challenge the narrative, to challenge, to create scientists out of the people, because we're all scientists. We're all asking questions. Science is about asking questions. If we knew how to reproduce blood, if we knew how to reproduce a human from, from, you know, microbes, then I'd say, hey, we're one step closer to understanding life. But we haven't even reproduced blood, you know? They've tried, they haven't been able to. So to think that we know it all and that we, you know, we are above and beyond, it's still all hypothetical. You know, one day the science is is real and the next day it's not real. So, you know, why I remember, you know, years ago, we thought ulcers were from stress. And then Barry Marshall came up with it's a bacteria, kill the bacteria. And then um Dr. Pimentel at UCL at uh, Cedar Sinai said, save the bacteria because the bacteria can be protective against reflux. And then somebody else wrote the paper that said, kill the bacteria because it's precancerous. So, you know, all these things here we are and we still, you know, H. pylori, you know, has gone from taught us a lot. C. diff taught us a lot. Think about it. 25 years I've tried to kill this bacteria only to figure out that I didn't need to kill it. I just needed to suffocate it with more bacteria and fecal transplant. That took 25 years. So to stop research, to stop progress, this is not a computer you're turning on. This is not a recipe for crepes, right? This is human beings, all different, all different fingerprints and all different microbiomes. And if we don't think like that, we've lost the boat. So well said, well said, and we'll put Dr. Pimentel's episode below because we interviewed him all about, yeah. yeah, so he has been here. So in his episode was fantastic. So I'm glad you mentioned him. Um, well, I have just thoroughly enjoyed 
talking about COVID and hearing about this and listening to you talk about challenging the science, challenging the narratives that are going on. I think that that's really important. I think you've given us a very different way to look at COVID. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne-Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.